Over this summer, we're going to be reading the, together the Beatitudes. Um, each week, we're going to be reading an additional Beatitude. So each week, we'll read a, an additional verse. So this week, we're going to read Matthew 5, 1 through 3. Next week, we'll add in verse 4, so on and so forth. So this summer, I actually would encourage you, if you would, bring your own Bible with you. Bring, bring the Bible you do your devotional stuff with. Bring the Bible you do your, your reading with. That's what I'm doing is this Bible I preach from is what, I'm, what I, I do my devotions with in the morning. Because we're going to be walking together through this um, beautiful teaching of Christ. I think Jesus has a lot that he wants to say to us through the Beatitudes. So, and I'm looking forward to walking together through us, to, together as a church family. So I would now invite you as you're able in body or in spirit to stand for the reading of our gospel lesson, which will come today from Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 3. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The Bible is such an amazing book. It was written over a thousand years. I mean, from the time it was started writing to the completion of it. The earliest book written in the Bible was probably Genesis, um, very early, pre-1000 pre A.D., B.C., most people think. To the latest God, book written was Revelation, around 100 A.D. So you've got over a 1,000 years that it took for this book to be written. And there's so many amazing things about Scripture that are just beautiful. One of, one of the things I think is so important for us to do with the Bible is to learn how to read it in totality. To see the overarching stories that Scripture is teaching to us. Because when you really dig down and look at Scripture in the big picture, in the big story it's painting, it, 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 is, it is a beautiful Beautiful, beautiful text. The scriptures are amazing. Over six, there's 66 books written by different authors. And what's so cool about this is how they sing the same song. They're telling the same story with different emphasis and different things that are important to each writer. But the scriptures paint a uniform picture of God's love and God's redemption for us. And like the Bible's amazing because let, let's say... Let's take the whole Jesus and religion thing out of the Bible. Let's just look at the Bible as a book example, for instance. Um, the Bible dates to not too much longer after Socrates and Plato. You know, it's that old. And so one of the things people struggle with the, with the Bible is, well, how can something this, 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 this old be reliable? How do we know we can trust it? Um, how many of you at night sit up and think to yourself, gosh, I wonder if Plato really existed. Hmm, I know many of you at night when you're tossing and turning think, hmm, how can we trust the writings of Socrates? How do, we, how do we know that that's true? No, you've never thought that because you're normal. You wouldn't think that. You're not a philosopher. No offense to philosophers, but they're weird. Um, so um, there are two words that are important in biblical translation. The Bible was written in Greek and Hebrew. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. New Testament, by and large, was Greek. So the original writing, Paul's actual letter to the Romans, that, the actual letter that was written to the Romans is called an autograph. That was Paul's original letter. 
we have zero autographs. There are no autographs. A manuscript is a copy of that original letter. By the way, we don't have any autographs of nearly any book or letter from that time. We have a lot of manuscripts. So how many manuscripts do you think there are of Plato and Socrates and folks like that? Less than 100. Not bad. You know how many manuscripts we have of the different parts of Scripture? Over 50,000. There is no book from antiquity, no book from that time period that is more reliable, more accurate, more verifiable than Scripture. Like I said, taking the whole Jesus and religion thing out of it, just looking at it as a book, there's no book from antiquity from that time period that has the same reliability and same accuracy verifiably than Holy Scripture. The Dead Sea Scrolls were scrolls that date to Jesus' day. That would have been the, Bible, the Old Testament Jesus would have read. It is exactly as we read ours now. You can trust the accuracy of Scripture. You can. Now, then you add, the, okay, so now let's add in the Jesus religion part. Here's what's cool about the Bible. The Bible is this beautiful, this beautiful story, this true story, but there's also big picture stuff of what God's doing there. When you read the Bible in totality and see the big picture, you see something beautiful. Okay, let's start in the beginning. In Genesis, where did this whole thing start? Genesis 1, 2, in the garden. We're in a garden, yay, gardens, awesome. Okay, so Genesis 1 and 2, beautiful, in a garden. Genesis 3, evil enters in, the serpent, the fall, sin. And the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 onward is God's plan of redemption for his people. Genesis 1 and 2 shows the worth of everyone. They're all made in God's image. It shows the reality of sin and brokenness. But then the rest of the Bible is God's plan of redemption for these people, how he does it through covenants and relationships. So it starts in a garden. Hit fast forward all the way to Revelation. Where does it end? In a garden. In a garden with the river flowing from the throne of God. Do you see how God's plan of redemption is to restore everything that sin corrupts and destroys? God is in the redemption business. We see it from how he redeems what sin took in Genesis 3. Okay, here's another one. Keep reading in Genesis, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. The people are all smart and fancy, and they got this new amazing technology called making bricks. And they take their new technology and say, our technology is so great. We're going to build ourselves a tower to show how great our modern technology is. Hmm. Some things never change. So humanity uses their modern technology to build this tower all the way to heaven. Then you read the text and God like has to look down to see it. Like what's going on down there? He comes down, scatters the people, divides the language. So at Babel, all the people come together as one people with one language. Then they're scattered. Many languages, many people. Okay, hit fast forward. The Pentecost next week. What happens on Pentecost Sunday? Everybody comes together 
many different people speaking many different languages. And what do they hear on Pentecost Sunday? One language, one word, the word of Jesus Christ and his salvation. Pentecost is the undoing of this sin of Babel. In Babel, the many became one, the one became many. On Pentecost, by the way, and then through the church, the word of God living amongst us takes the many of us here with our different stuff and opinions and beliefs and ethnicities and all this stuff. And then through Christ, the many become one. Do you see how Pentecost undoes the effects of Babel? That's what scripture does. These books are written almost a thousand years apart, but God is weaving and painting this beautiful picture of his redemption all across scripture. The Bible, when you look at it this way, is amazing and it is life-giving. It is awesome. So today we're reading the gospel, reading Matthew's gospel. Okay, every biblical author has a little bit different perspective in the gospels. So you have Matthew, who was a Jewish tax collector. He's writing to, Jew, to Jewish believers. Luke is a Gentile doctor. He's writing to Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers. Mark is writing kind of a Roman perspective. And then you have John answering the big pictures and the big questions. That's why the gospels need to be read together as well to get the full picture of who Jesus is. But remember, Matthew is Jewish and writing to a Jewish Christian audience. Okay, hear that. So notice the first thing that happens this passage today is it says this. Jesus saw the crowds, went up on a mountain, and after he came down, his disciples came to him. He sat down, his disciples came to him, then he began to speak and taught. So, in Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus go up on a mountain and give the people, if you will, a new law. Huh. Anybody, anybody in the Old Testament go up on a mountain and get a law? Moses. So for a Jewish audience, they see Jesus go up on the mountain. They go, oh, just like Moses. So and here's, the, here's the thing. Here's the thing for us as Christians. See, Moses' law is actually a little bit easier because Moses says this, don't murder. Okay, like here's the thing. I doubt most of us are going to murder anybody today. Some of y'all I'm a little worried about, not naming names. Some of y'all a little worried. But by and large, most of us in our daily life can avoid murder. Okay, like that's not that difficult. Not murdering is pretty easy. That's, that's the Old Testament and Old Covenant law. Don't murder. Cool. We're good. What's Jesus say? If you hate somebody in your heart... You've committed murder. Now that's hard. That's hard. So we see Moses give these laws for us to follow with our lifestyles. But then Jesus gives us the posture of the heart. That it isn't just enough to keep the law. But you got to have your heart committed to the truth. So we see Jesus giving for us on the mountain the posture of our religion. So each week in the Beatitudes, we'll look at a different posture for us to assume. Today's is poor in spirit. 
He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, the Bible, once again, is like I said, it's an interesting book. The word is translated blessed. Here's the thing about biblical translation. Biblical translation is an art, not a science. So different translations will translate this a little bit differently. And let me tell you why. The Bible was written, written in Greek and Hebrew, Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek. Uh, Greek is a very interesting language, and it doesn't always translate perfectly. And so there are different schools of thought. One's not better than the other. One's not right or wrong. Some verses, some translations translate phrase for phrase. Some translate word for word. What do I mean by that? Let me tell you. I'm preaching from the New Revised Standard. Uh, The reason why I preach from it is because that's the pew Bibles in our church. Every church I've ever served, I preach from whatever the pew Bible is. Some churches are preached NIV, some I preach New Revised, some I preach New Living. Like literally, whatever the most common Bible in my church is, is what I preach from. So I preach from New Revised. The New Revised, the ESV, they translate the Bible word for word. The NIV translates phrase for phrase. What does that mean? Let me tell you. In the Bible, it might say a phrase like the love of God. What does the love of God mean? Does the love of God mean my love for God? The love of God? Or does the love of God mean God's love for us? The love of God. It can go like both the NIV and other translations kind of translate the context for you, doing that kind of legwork for you and letting you understand what the actual context is. Where the NIV, the NRSV is going to translate word for word and read a little bit choppier. But it's not like one is right and one is wrong. Both are completely fine. They're really, it's what, however you prefer to read it. I'm saying this to say this, the Bible does not always translate perfectly into our language. Like for instance, the word blessed. Some translations out there today may have the word happy. That's, that's fine, but let me tell you what this word means in the Greek. What this word means is satisfied. Deeply and completely satisfied. Not by your circumstance, like Gina talked about, or not by your efforts, but satisfied with the indwelling of God's Spirit. Satisfied by the indwelling of God's Spirit. So completely and utterly satisfied by God's Spirit are the poor in spirit. Spirit meaning your soul, your your spirit. But poor, the word poor there doesn't just mean one who is poor, but it means one who is completely and totally indigent. One who literally cannot work to even improve their life. They are completely and totally helpless. They literally do not have the ability to work, to even make money, to improve themselves. They are completely and utterly helpless. So satisfied are those who realize that they are completely helpless in their soul. For theirs is the kingdom, God's God's place of heaven. Satisfied shall you be when you realize you are completely helpless to save yourself.
We spend all of our life trying to save ourselves, don't we? We spend all of our life trying to earn. You know, so I'm, you know, if I, if I work really hard, I'll make good grades. If I make, get, make good grades, I'll go to the right college. If I go to the right, right college, I'll get the right job. If I get the right job, I'll, make, I'll meet the right spouse. If I have, meet the right spouse, we'll have great kids. We have great kids. We got to live in the right subdivision. We got to get them in the right schools. We work and 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 we're never happy. We live in an age of almost overwhelming unhappiness. And we compare ourselves to others. They've got a better house than we do, a better car. Their kids are making better grades. They're, put, they're making little cute lunches for their kids that they put on Facebook and Instagram. My kids are getting spam and nutty buddies. You know? And then we feel like failures because look at what all they're doing. And we're never satisfied and never happy in our life because we're trying to do it all ourselves. And that then translates to God. If I work hard for God, I'll be satisfied. If I work hard enough, if I go to church, if I serve, if I give, if I do all these things, then God will love me and I'll feel good about myself. But we try really hard and we're working and working and working and working and working and we're never satisfied. We're never help. We're never happy. We do it all. We try it all and we're never happy. We translate that work over to our faith. If I just do enough, God will love me. If I just do enough, I'll get what I want. If I just do enough, everything will be okay. The Bible says, satisfied will you be when you realize you can't do it yourself. Satisfied will you be when you realize that you are helpless and that only God can save you. We spend so much time trying to earn God's love that we miss God's love right in front of us. Because it's not something we earn. It's something we receive. Completely satisfied shall you be when you realize you're helpless to save yourself. But the salvation is a gift, not a wage. And we're never satisfied because we're always trying to earn it. When the reality is, if we would stop and just breathe in God and breathe in his life and breathe in his grace and breathe in his mercy, we would find the satisfaction there that the world can never give us. And that religion can never give us. But that only Jesus can give us. And it isn't until we realize that we're helpless to find it that we actually can find it. Helpless. Satisfied are those who realize that they can't save themselves. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let it go. 
and give it to God. I think it's fitting that we end today with communion. Um, I don't know, think about when you were a kid. Now, what did you do when you were a kid to earn your spot at your parents' table? Now, listen, your parents might have had regulations. You know, my parents had rules, the table. It's, it's funny, I was eating lunch with a friend of mine, with a family member recently at a graduation party. And I grew, like, I grew up, like, you don't wear a baseball hat at the table. You do not wear a hat at the table. So I don't care how bad my hair looks. If I'm eating somewhere, I don't care if I'm at the finest restaurant in the world. I'm taking my hat off because I don't care that Maxine Soddard's 90 and a walker. If she hears that I'm at the table with a hat on, she will come find me and I will get a whooping. I know that for a fact. So we had rules at our table when I was a kid. But what did I do to earn my spot at the Stoddard's table? Nothing. I was just born. And I didn't even do anything with that. I just showed up. You didn't do anything to earn your spot at your family's table, did you? You were simply born, and you had a place there. You don't have to do anything to earn a spot at the master's table. You just have to show up and be willing. Satisfied are those who realize that they are helpless to save themselves. For theirs is the kingdom of God. May we realize just how great the love of our Father is. And may we realize that we all have a spot at the master's table. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for your love, for your mercy, and for your grace. We love you so much. Thank you for giving us your grace and your salvation now and always. We ask all this in Jesus' sweet and holy name. Amen. I invite you now to turn with me to page 12 in your hymnal. Something, I was talking with some folks recently, and we were talking about communion. And I don't know how many of you have ever noticed this about our communion service. You know, we always start off communion with a time of confession. Because the Bible says if you have all with your neighbor... Get up from the altar and go make things right with your neighbor. It's important for us before we come to communion to take a moment and to to experience that grace that comes from hearing in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. We aren't told we're forgiven often in life. It's important for us to hear that. So we always start off communion with that time of confession so that we can experience not just the table, but experience actual forgiveness for our sins. But then you may notice on page 13, when we go to, uh, let's give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and praise. And then we'll say it's right and good and a joyful thing. And then I'll start prattling on stuff that you're like, wait, what, what's Andy say? what Andy's saying is not in here. Where's Andy getting this? Well, I'm not smart enough to have made that up. The church year, right now we're in the season from Easter to Pentecost. We have this book called the Book of Worship that has different prayers for different seasons of the church life. So in the communion liturgy, the communion prayers... When you hear me say things that you're like, wait, that's not in here. I'm reading from some specific prayers for the season. So I wanted you to be aware where that comes from. Because most of, we aren't taught this, are we? It just kind of happens, you know. And so I wanted you to kind of, I want you, one of the things I want to do this summer 
is I'm gonna, we're going to teach the Beatitudes. We're also going to talk a little bit about how we worship like we worship and what's happening and why do we do the things we do. Because a lot of times we don't really know why we do them. We just do them because we've always done them. So in communion, that's why we confess our sins. But that's why you'll hear me say some additional things that aren't in your hymnal because I'm praying some prayers that are specific to this season in the church year. Next Sunday's Pentecost. We're in that season between Easter and Pentecost. So I want you to know where that's coming from and why you will sometimes hear me say things in the communion liturgy that aren't written in your hymnal. I invite you now, though, to join me in your hymnal. Page 12. Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin, and who seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ, our Lord.